Joel. Book of Joel. Let's ask the Lord to help us tonight. Lord, once again, we thank you. We thank you now for your word. We thank you for your word preached. We know that ultimately, Lord, it is you speaking to us through a human speaker inasmuch as it's being properly and accurately represented in your scriptures. And so we do pray for this preacher that, that what he has prepared is in fact accurate and that you would help us to retain all that is true and good and if there's been any misstep that you would help us to quickly forgive it. I'd rather forget it, that it wouldn't stick with us, but rather that we would be able to, to know your truth and to know what to do with your truth according to our everyday lives. We pray that you would guide us even in this book that we don't visit very often. We pray that we would treasure your truth and treasure your word as you deserve. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I sent a text message to my family, I mean, um, my brothers and sisters and my parents, we have a group chat here, and this is what I told them. The DNA test did confirm that she does have it. God is good all the time. So this is in reference to a genetic condition I told some of you about that we found out that our three-week-old actually has, and to... Um, calm, calm your spirits a little bit. It's really n not a fatal thing. Uh, she's just got to eat low-fat all her life, and uh, when she's an infant, it'll be a little harder because if she gets sick, then she'll stop eating, and she needs to eat. And if she doesn't eat, then we've got to take her to the ER. But besides that, it really is a pretty easily manageable disorder. So just to calm your spirits there a little bit. I'm not boasting on myself when I say that I added that to the end of the text. This is the Spirit's work in me, and all credit goes to him. But I ended that text confirming that she does have this disorder with the words, God is good all the time. God is good all the time. God is not only good when life is going exactly how we want it. When we are blessed, God is good. When we're suffering, God is good. When we're being disciplined, God is good. And when he judges with his wrath, God is good. The first part of this prophecy of Joel is heavy on judgment. It's really heavy on judgment. It describes some difficult times that God put his people through. And then the latter part of Joel is, is very heavy on God's salvation. But we're going to see that either way, God is good. That God is good not only in his salvation, but he's also good in his judgment. And we'll also see that we ought to tell people about that. So let's start with that. We're going to give you nine points, but they'll go more quickly than usual. So nine points, and we'll start with what I just said. Number one. We are to tell the next generation about God's judgment. We are to tell the next generation about God's judgment. So we're going to be ambitious tonight. It's three chapters. Throughout this sermon, we'll have read the entire book of Joel together. All right? So let's start with chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Now, not much is known about this prophet Joel besides what we see in this book. And it's not even clear what historical setting this book takes place in. But there's some pretty good evidence in the book that it probably takes place after the Babylonian exile, talking 500s, and after the second temple is built. Joel, the son of Pethuel, is, is the prophet through whom God speaks. And Joel says in verse 2, or rather God through Joel says this, he calls the elders to pay attention. 
When we see the word elders, we often think of our pastors, and it might be talking about leaders of Israel, but, and that would make sense next to the phrase, all inhabitants, in verse 2. So, in other words, all leaders, all people, listen to what I'm going to tell you. The King James Version translates it, old men, old men. So, rather than talking about leaders, it could be talking about the older generation, which goes well with what verse 3 says, tell your children. Older generation, tell the younger generation. Whatever the case is, everyone is being called to pay attention. God asks in verse 2, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? In other words, don't you see how rare what has happened to you is? Don't you see how rare what you've just gone through is? Implied in this is that they didn't recognize God's judgment on them, which makes it difficult. It's hard to repent if you don't realize that you're being disciplined. For example, you know, think, think of this as an illustration of a child not realizing that he's been spanked. That spanking is ineffective in terms of discipline because he didn't even realize he was spanked. So this is the purpose of this first part of this prophecy, is to help the people realize what God has done to them and why he has done it. And then he tells them to tell others about this. Verse 3, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What God had just done to them was to be passed down from generation to generation. The future generations needed to know of God's past judgment on them as a warning for future judgment. Because past judgment shows that God is just, and he's not going to tolerate sin in the future. That's why the next generations needed to know about God's judgment. And I think some, we, sometimes we forget we're part of this heritage. We are part of this spiritual lineage. We Gentile believers have been grafted into true Israel. Thus, we have inherited Israel's past. It's kind of like how Pastorolo was former Air Force, but now he's Navy. And now that he's Navy, he owns the movie Top Gun, I guess. He owns the Navy's legacy, all right, because he is part of that organization. And because we're part of this heritage, then we too can and should tell the next generation of God's past judgments. Why? Because when we tell the next generation of God's past judgments, like we see in the book of Joel, it points to God's character. It shows that he is just and righteous and he hates sin. It also foretells his coming judgment on sin in the future and their need, the people's need, to trust in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I, we know that there is that negative stereotype of Christians being hellfire and brimstone, and, and certainly we shouldn't only be hell, hellfire and brimstone, but we should not be soft on the judgment of God. There's a problem of talking only about grace. That's all, if that's all you ever want to talk about is grace, there is a problem with that. And the problem with that is that you don't understand grace without understanding judgment. You can't understand grace without understanding judgment. Imagine that you were on the Titanic after it's just struck the iceberg and you're just running around telling everyone there's plenty of lifeboats, but you're not telling them about the iceberg. They don't know that there's a need for them to go to the lifeboats because you haven't told them that the iceberg has been struck. So we need to tell people about judgment in order for them to understand grace. So just some practical tips on this. Catechize your children. Catechize. Uh, essentially what that means is there, there are historically these documents, like for example, Keech's Catechism or the Baptist Catechism. It's the same thing. But what it is is it's question and answer format. Who is God? Who is the chiefest and best of beings? And then the answer to that God is. And the reason why catechisms are helpful is because, for example, the Baptist Catechism clearly explains grace, but it also clearly explains law. What is the first commandment? 
What is the second commandment? What does it require of us? And as children are learning these, they're going to see, I'm not living up to this. I deserve God's wrath. And it shows your children and yourself and others why we need a Savior. Another tip is that when you're evangelizing, share the good news, that is the evangelism part, but also share the bad news. I couldn't remember and I couldn't find on Google, believe it or not, whoever said this, but the idea was that if they were on an hour-long train ride, they would spend the first 50 minutes talking about God's wrath and spend the last 10 talking about God's grace. Now that doesn't sound, doesn't hit our ears quite right, but the reality is that for a lot of people in this world, they don't think that they need salvation. They need to be convinced that they need a Savior by the working of the Holy Spirit in them and through your speaking the truth in love to them. So tell the next generation about this. Tell the next generation of God's judgment. If you are a parent, you are the primary discipler of your children. And this is way more important than sports. It's way more important than math. It's way more important than learning a musical instrument. Those things are fine and good. But you need to dedicate even more time and energy to teach your children about God's judgment and grace, but God's judgment also. As they get older, train them to train their future children. Because if they're not equipped to pass it on to the next generation, it stops with them. And church, even though it is the parents' primary responsibility, we do assist in that discipleship together. The next generation needs to understand God's judgment so that they flee from it and they flee to Christ. So we're to tell the next generation about God's judgment. Number two, God disciplines his people. God disciplines his people. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 12. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. So now we see what kind of judgment God was talking about in our first three verses. It's some sort of locust infestation. Verse 4 mentions four different locusts, but it's not necessarily talking about four different kinds of locusts, but possibly it was four different infestations that hit the land, or it's just emphatic repetition to emphasize the complete destruction of all of their crops. This harkens back to the plague on Egypt, right? But God plagues his people here. Similar purpose, to get them to do something, but there's a different end goal. Maybe drunkenness or hedonism are called out in verse 5 when it's talking about drunkards. Look at how your wine was cut off from your mouths. In verse 6, we see that the locusts are compared to an invading army. And this locust army, if you will, was sent by God to destroy vine and fig tree. And the people were to, verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Sackcloth was for mourning. So for the people to lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth, the idea is like of a young woman who's, who's betrothed died before they could actually marry and consummate their marriage and have heirs. Mourn like that. Destroyed crops meant poverty and famine. I, I was thinking about the, uh, just a moment ago, actually. There is a special formula that we need to obtain because of this condition my daughter has. And it's, 
as you know, very hard to find formula, much less specialized formula. And that is causing some stress, but it's not causing this kind of stress, saints. All of your crops and harvests destroyed, that's a lot worse than not being able to find formula. That's the kind of judgment they were enduring. But there's also another problem in verse 9. It halts the sacrificial system. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. So what they needed to continually do to remain in good covenant standing with God was removed from them because of their sin. And so the priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. Everything was destroyed. Fields, the grounds, the grain, the wine, the oil, the wheat, the barley, the harvest, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the palm, the apple, all the trees. And of course, from all of that, gladness dries up from the children of man. You could imagine that gladness would dry up if all the trees dried up. Now, why would God do such a thing to his own people? Because of his steadfast love for them. His steadfast love for them. We're going to see in the next passage that it's, it's so that they would repent. It is way better to suffer for a little while now so that you could be right with God rather than enjoy your sinful lifestyles forever and be destroyed. It would be unloving for him to not discipline his children. Hebrews 12.6 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You might think, isn't sending locusts to destroy everything over the top? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. For one, because God's people are always doing better than they deserve. And for two, God knows exactly how much discipline to apply to get his children's attention. God still disciplines us. Hebrews 12 says that his disciplining us is actually proof that we're God's children. It also says that he disciplines us for our good. Verse 10 of Hebrews 12, that we may share his holiness. The purpose of God's discipline is to make us less like our old sinful selves and more like Christ. And it is unpleasant, but it gets the job done. Now, how are we disciplined? Various different ways. Going through hardship in our life. Loss, like in 2 Samuel 12, 13 through 18. Physical ailments or even death, like 1 Corinthians 11. And sometimes, just, facing, just being allowed to face the natural consequences of our sin. We sin, and it's destructive, and God allows us to go through that pain. And in addition to that, you probably have experienced that when you sin against God, there is a coldness in your heart towards him. There is a distance on your part towards him, and that's discipline also. How do we know if we're being disciplined? Well, the answer is we're always being disciplined. God is always making us more like his son. We have to be careful not to try to connect all suffering to specific sins like the Pharisees tried to do. But if you are facing suffering in some way, then at least stop and consider what is in your life that you might need to repent of. And do that even if you're not suffering, right? Know that God disciplines you, allows you to hurt, and it's for your own good because he loves you. God disciplines his people. Number three of nine. God's people are to repent of their sins. God's people are to repent of their sins. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. 
Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So the response that God calls for is repentance. This concept of sackcloth and and lament and wailing, all of those in verse 13, sackcloth, lament, wailing, it, it's indicative of a true inner repentance. Repentance is, starts from the inside. And then in verse 14, we see the outward expression of that, a fast, a solemn assembly, crying out to the Lord, getting together and having public corporate repentance. And it's not only because of the past judgment or the current judgment, but about a future one as well. Verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Past judgments, past disciplines, if you will, point forward to the final judgment. And we'll address that more in just a moment. But verses 16 through 18 recount this most recent discipline from God, uh, this locust infestation that led to famine. Even their livestock was, was suffering for their sin. And then in verses 19 through 20, you have the actual words of repentance. Maybe Joel is himself expressing repentance, or it's a form that priests can follow, but he says in verses 19 through 20, To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Notably, there is really no sin that's confessed there. But the main idea here is that, is that God's people, through experiencing this destruction, are once again realizing that they need God. They need God's grace. They need God's mercy on them. We, too, are called to repent. Even after we're, we're believers, we're called to repent. 1 John 1, 9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what that implies is that in some way, if we don't confess our sins, he won't forgive us our sins. And he won't cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which causes some stress as we think about sola fide, faith alone. But to explain this in the way that we should rightly understand it, is that through our faith in Jesus Christ, and faith alone in Jesus Christ, all of our sins are forgiven in a legal way. We're justified. We're considered not guilty forever and ever. But when we sin, there is still discipline from God. That includes the feeling of distance from him, the coldness toward him, a disturbed fellowship with him. But as soon as we confess our sin, that discipline, that distance, that coldness that we feel is immediately removed. And God works to cleanse us immediately of our sin through confessing our sins to him. And furthermore, God is not interested in heartless repentance. We may not have sackcloth, but, but we have what sackcloths represented. We can have mourning over our sin. True repentance includes hating and mourning over our sins. Mourn over your sin to God, and he will comfort you immediately. God's people are to repent of their sins. Number four, a greater judgment is coming. A greater judgment is coming. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. Nothing escapes them. 
Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Like war horses they run, as with a rumbling of chariots. They leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another, each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Trumpets were to warn of impending danger. We see that in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. There's impending danger. They were to blow a trumpet in Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. Why? Because the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Well, isn't that good news? Not for the wicked. Throughout the Bible, the phrase, the day of the Lord, is associated with judgment. And sometimes it would be talking about a temporal event in Israel's history, like, for example, the invasion of a foreign army. Commentators and, I, and myself can't really agree on whether this is talking about an actual army invading or if it's talking about locusts again. It's hard to tell whether Joel is talking about an army using that metaphor of locusts or if he's talking about locusts using the metaphor of an army. But either way, whatever this is, such a coming invasion in history, whether by humans or by more locusts, would only be pointing forward to the final judgment. That's where we want our brains tonight. It's pointing forward to the final judgment. This judgment here sounds even worse than the locusts before. Verse 2, we have a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Throughout the Old Testament, clouds and thick darkness is, a, is associated with judgment. And that should hopefully bring your mind to the darkness that was over the cross for three hours where Jesus was silent, experiencing God's judgment on himself. Whatever this is, it would be an incomparably large invading force. Verse 3 describes a day of fiery and total destruction. Verses 4 and 9 explains how it's, it's swift and it's precise in its destruction. Whatever this is, this isn't just some army that's working apart from God. Verse 11 says, The Lord utters his voice before his army, his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. Whatever or whoever this army is, it belongs to God. He commands this army. And even if it's some foreign nation that's an enemy of Israel coming to lay waste to Israel, it's God's judgment. So the foreign army would be God's agent. Whether this is talking about locusts or army, it's pointing forward to the day of the Lord. And we need to be aware of that. We need to make the people around us aware of the day of the Lord, of the coming judgment. We need to let our children become aware of the day of the Lord, and then their children need to be aware of it, and then their children need to be aware of it if the Lord tarries that long. All of these past judgments point to the future judgment, and God wants us to be aware of that and tell others about it. Why? We'll see that in the next point. We'll see that in the next point. But a greater judgment is coming. Number five, God's people should repent accordingly. God's people should repent accordingly. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. 
Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride leave her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? So God warns of impending judgment, but he also graciously gives his people a way out of it. Verse 12, Yet even now, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Again, true repentance, fasting, weeping, mourning. Verse 13, and rend your hearts and not your garments. So in ancient times, if, if people were mourning or grieving, they would tear their clothes. But God isn't interested in tearing clothes unless it's a reflection of the true grief over sin inside. He calls his people to return to him. And the reasons why it's possible for his people to return to him is that he is gracious and merciful. His character is, is such that he graciously gives us what we don't deserve and he mercifully holds back what we do deserve. He's gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. God is wrathful towards sin. And yet he doesn't just strike down people on the spot immediately when they sin. He's patient. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's made a covenant of love with his people, and he intends to keep it. And he relents over disaster. As he's shown in the past, he removes impending judgment on his, from his people if people repent. Verse 14 harkens back to to what the Ninevites said in the book of Jonah, who were spared after they repented. It sounds very similar. In verse 14, it says, Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. We see the trumpet again in verse 15, another trumpet. But now it's for a different reason. This trumpet is to call for a fast, to call for a solemn assembly, to call for the repentance of God's people. In verses 17, we see the words of repentance. Verse 17. Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Interestingly here, they don't appeal to anything in themselves. They don't say, forgive us because we're sorry. They they, instead, they point to God's covenant. They point to his glory. Make not your heritage a reproach. Don't let people be asking, where's their God? So they're appealing to his glory. Earlier, we saw that current judgment and past judgment should cause people to repent. And now here, we see that future judgment should cause people to repent. Future judgment should cause people to repent. That applies to unbelievers and believers. Unbelievers, those who don't know Jesus Christ, you need to know that God's wrath is coming. But it's not here yet. And there is time, even tonight, to place your trust in the one who came and died for sinners like you and me, Jesus Christ, and rose again victorious, victorious over sin and death, so that all who believe in him will not face God's impending wrath, but instead be given eternal life. So unbelievers need to know that. Believers need to be aware of God's future judgment. The New Testament appeals to Judgment Day for our own continuing repentance. Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Romans 14, 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? 
For we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. In other words, they're going to answer for what they do. Don't judge them for things that are secondary or matters of conscience. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Revelation 22.12 Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. So God will judge us at the end, and we will be expected to have borne the fruit of the Spirit. Now, in the final analysis, we're going to see that it was God who did that in us. But knowing that our fruits are going to be examined should cause us to continually repent of our sins. A great judgment is coming, and God's people should repent accordingly. Number six, God will remain faithful to his people. God will remain faithful to his people. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O Lord, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who was dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Praise God. The idea behind God's being jealous for his land in verse 18 is the same idea that Jesus applied to himself when he said, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal, jealousy, it's the same Hebrew word and the Greek word. This was God's chosen land for his chosen people. This was his covenant land, so he had jealousy for it. And he had, verse 18 said, pity on his people. He heard their cries of repentance and he pitied them. And it wouldn't just be forgiveness. Imagine that the land is desolate. They, they, they repent and God says, all right, I forgive you. Let's just move on from this. It's not just forgiveness, but it's restoration. Verse 19, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Not only would he pardon them of their sin, but then he would take care of their every need, and he would restore their dignity among the nations. So it would be restoration. It would also be deliverance. Deliverance. Verse 20, I will remove the northerner from you, far from you, and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. He says northerner because invading armies would usually come from the north, hence why some think that this is talking about a human army, not locusts, because locusts would come from the south. But God would destroy this enemy and they would, he would scatter them because of their wickedness toward his people. Fear would be removed from the land. Their crops would once again abound. Gladness and rejoicing would come back in because rain would be pouring, ending any drought that had happened. And anything that they lost to locusts 
so maybe it's locusts, would be restored to them. And they would eat, and they would be satisfied. They would eat and be satisfied. And he would continue to dwell with them, and they would never again be put to shame. God would remain faithful to them. I say remain faithful to them because he had never stopped being faithful to them. Even in judgment, he was faithful to them. He faithfully judged them so that they would return from their unfaithfulness and he could continue to be faithful to them. This is how God deals with us when we repent of sin. He immediately shows us mercy and grace. He immeasurably blesses us. And he resumes and continues showing faithfulness to us because he never stopped. He has never once stopped being faithful to us, even when we have been unfaithful to him. Even his discipline of us is faithful. And he will remain faithful to us forever. Praise God. So constantly run to him, Christian. Struggling Christian, constantly run to him. No matter how far you have gotten in your struggle with sin, how far away from him you've gotten, sprint back to Christ right now. God will remain faithful to his people. Number seven, God will preserve his people. God will preserve his people. Chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male, ser- uh, male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass... Why did I lose my spot as I was reading it? And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So what was just described prior to that passage was what restoration would look like. But there's a problem with that. The problem with that restoration is the people. Because throughout Israel's history, all the way up to this point, we see God's people recidivating, going back to their sin when things are going well. One day, God would give his people something greater. Something greater than getting your plants back, getting rain. Far greater than that. Himself. Something that would lead not only to abundant life on earth, but abundant life forever and ever himself. So sometime after the events that were listed before, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, on all people, verse 28. And their sons and their daughters would prophesy. It wouldn't just be a select few prophets on rare occasions able to speak God's word. Their old men, too, would dream dreams, and their young men would see visions. And in verse 29, even on the servants, the lowest people in society, he would pour out his spirit, male and female. And when was that fulfilled? Pentecost. Pentecost. Keep your finger there in Joel and turn to Acts 2. Acts 2. Acts 2, verses 1 through 16. When the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, 
Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're all filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only 9 a.m., the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he, then he quotes the entire passage that we're looking at in Joel. Now, what we just heard was, was a particularly unique work of the Spirit that would happen only three other times. Because what we see is that it happened with the Jews, and then it happened when the gospel reached the Samaritans, and then it happened when it reached the first Gentiles to receive it, Cornelius and his household, and then it happened the last time when it went to the Ephesians. So four different Pentecost-like expressions. They were clear demonstrations, you couldn't deny it, of God's saving all who trust in Jesus, whether Jew and Gentile. And now that this has been made clear in his word, we shouldn't expect more experiences like Pentecost. But with that said, God, the Holy Spirit, is still very much at work in every single believer. He indwells every single believer permanently. God, the Holy Spirit, lives in you and works in you. And beyond just dwelling in you, there is another sense in which he fills you. He fills you for ministry, for speaking the truth in love. And in doing these things, God has ensured this, in pouring out his spirit on his people, that for his people in the new covenant, they will remain faithful in spite of their circumstances. And they will all be useful for his kingdom. That's what happens as God, that now that God has poured out his spirit on his people. But God's judgment is not over. It's kind of unsettling because it's like this, this great news of God pouring out his spirit and then it talks about blood and fire and columns of smoke. God's judgment is not yet over. But the judgment is not on God's people. The judgment is on God's enemies. We are currently living in a reality where God's kingdom is all over the world wherever his people are. And yet, Satan's kingdom is also all over the world, around God's people. And thus, God will still show great signs of judgment, and he's going to do so at the very end. But, verse 32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The judgment is not going to touch those on whom he has poured out his spirit. Christians will be delivered from God's judgment. We will escape. We will survive because God has poured out his spirit on us, all we who believe in Jesus Christ. So he will preserve us to the end. He's going to preserve us to the end. We need to persevere to the end. We need to run to the finish line. We need to make war on our sin. We do need to endure hardship and struggling and make it through that. But all of that is going to be by the Holy Spirit's work in us. God will preserve his people. Number eight, God will defeat the enemies of his people. God will defeat the enemies of his people. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyr and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasure into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. 
Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. There's a lot of detail there and not a lot of time, so I'll just summarize. And I've relied very heavily on Professor Timothy Whitmer, uh, his commentary in these final verses to help me condense it. In this section, we see that that God is not only the deliverer of his people, but he's also the judge of the nations who have harassed his people. So he delivers his people, but he is also the judge of the nations who have harassed his people. We see the words Valley of Jehoshaphat in verse 2 and in verse 12. The word Jehoshaphat means the Lord is judge. The Lord is judge. Israel's deliverance meant the destruction of wicked nations. Our deliverance means the destruction of our spiritual enemies. Everyone who goes against God's purposes and who do not repent will be judged. They will reap what they sow. In fact, in verse 10 of chapter 3, God says to these enemies, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Paraphrase, bring everything you got. Bring everyone you got. There is no stopping my just judgment. And by the way, this is, that language in verse 10 is evidence that these, these enemies are not suddenly repenting and turning to God. No, they're, they're turning their farming instruments to weapons to continue to fight against him and his people. This is a good part of the story. The destruction of the wicked as hard as it is to think about sometimes, is a good part of the story. Because there are times in our battle where it seems like the enemy is winning. It seems like he's getting a foothold. It seems like he's about to breach our wall. But there will come a day when God will come and destroy them all and rescue us. Our enemies are spiritual. Ephesians six twelve, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood i.e. humans, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In the end, together with those who do not repent and trust in Jesus, Satan and all of the demonic forces will finally and fully be destroyed. And the last enemy, death, will also be destroyed. Everything is going to be made right. He is going to show both his salvation and his judgment on that day, on the day of the Lord. Both his mercy and his wrath. Come, Lord Jesus. God is going to defeat the enemies of his people. Number nine, finally, God will bless, God will forever bless his people. God will forever bless his people. Verses 17 through 21. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. 
Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So these final verses are the glorious result of God's judgment on the day of the Lord. And it's put into terms that would be really meaningful for ancient people. We'll have a dwelling place with him. Verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion. God is going to dwell in Zion, but a heavenly Jerusalem with his people forever. Verse 18 describes a a never-ending supply of wine, milk, and flowing water. And that may not sound exciting to you, but again, think how amazing that sounds to an ancient people. Never-ending supply of wine, milk, and flowing water. He'll give us eternal security. Verse 20, Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. So we have this dwelling place, this never-ending supply, and this eternal security. And note how all of those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is and always will be present with his people. Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is that never-ending spring of refreshment. John 4.14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he is the giver of eternal life and security. John 3.16, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So through Jesus Christ, the Garden of Eden is restored. The new creation has dawned. Right now, this old age of sin and death is still around. But one day, he's going to come again, he's going to destroy sin and death, and Eden will be restored perfectly forever for us. Oh, what amazing grace. Oh, how we long for that day. Oh, how the knowledge of that day strengthens us in times of trouble. We can let go in this world because we don't ultimately belong here. We belong there. Come, Lord Jesus. So in summary, we are to tell the next generation about God's judgment. God disciplines his people. They're to repent of their sins. A greater judgment is coming. God's people should repent accordingly. But God will remain faithful to his people. He'll preserve us. He'll defeat our enemies. And he'll bless us forever. Four quick applications in these last few minutes. Put your trust in him. Put your trust in him. What we've described is true for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you are, as been described, the enemies whom God will destroy. But there is time, again, even today, to leave your sin and turn to him and trust in him. And instead of being his enemy, you'll be welcomed into his family as a beloved child. Put your trust in him today. Secondly, Christians, don't get comfortable in your sin. Don't get comfortable in your sin. Remember how God has judged sin in the past, how God has dealt very firmly in disciplining his people. Don't get comfortable in your sin. Recognize that the God who hates sin will either discipline it out of you or you'll reveal yourself to have been an unbeliever. Thirdly, remember the end to which we're headed. Think eschatologically. Think about the end of the story because sometimes that's exactly what we need in times of trouble. Sometimes thinking about how we will be delivered from this and how one day God is going to wipe every tear from our eyes is what we need. So remember the end to which we're headed. And then lastly, tell others about God's judgment and deliverance. Tell others about God's judgment and deliverance. Our responsibility is to the people around us in this generation and three generations from now, and God willing, even a hundred generations from now, if he tarries. Let's ask the Lord for his help in all this. 
Lord, thank you so much for showing us that in all of these things you are good. You judge sinners. You discipline us, your people, when we sin. And you show incredible grace and mercy. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to make war on our sin. Help us, Lord, to not take your faithfulness to granted, not to trample all over it, but instead to respond to your incredible and amazing gospel with our own faithfulness as your Holy Spirit works in us. Help us, Lord, to live for you in all things and to spread our message of both bad news and good news to the coming generations so that in the next generations and all over the world, you would be worshipped and praised as you deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me?